Today's scripture reading comes from John chapter 4, verses 1 to 26. This is the reading of God's word. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed. The water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. This is the word of the Lord. Well, last week we started a brand new series called The Emotionally Healthy Church, inspired by Peter Scazzaro's book that explores the relationship between emotional health and spiritual maturity. It's a topic that sadly a lot of churches don't talk about because some feel it's a little too touchy-feely or a little too abstract or out there. But I would say that if our goal as a church is ultimately to become like Jesus, to look like Him, to love like Him, to live like Him, and I believe it's absolutely imperative that we don't neglect this very important part of our being. You know, we're living in a moment when we're all learning to take specific precautions to protect our physical health. Remembering to wash our hands, wearing masks, social distancing. I mean, one great thing that has come out of this pandemic is that my kids have never been cleaner. And why do we do all these things? It's because COVID-19 has shown us that in spite of all the technological and medical advancements that have taken place up to this point, our bodies are still very susceptible to disease. We're not as strong as we thought. 
But not only has this pandemic revealed just how physically fragile we are, I think it's also revealed just how emotionally fragile we are. But sadly, I don't think we take our emotional health nearly as seriously as we do our physical health. And part of the reason for this is that often when it comes to our emotional health, we don't always see the effects right away. You know, in sports, they say breaking your ankle can often be better than spraining it. Because when you break your ankle, it requires immediate attention. But when you sprain it, depending on how bad that sprain is, a lot of people will either try to play through the pain or they won't take the measures necessary to allow that ankle to heal properly, which we know can ultimately end up causing a lot more injuries in the long run. Well, in the same way, I think when it comes to our emotional health, we often think, you know what, it's not a big deal. It'll be fine. I'll get through it. But I guarantee you that even if you think you're able to live with it today, at some point, given the right amount of pressure, the right amount of stress, that small issue will begin to rear its ugly head and start to impact every aspect of your life, your family, your work, and your relationships. And my guess is that amidst all that's been happening in 2020, many of us are starting to see those effects now. We're a lot more sensitive to criticism and we're not sure why. We're a lot more reactive and defensive and we're not sure why. We're saying things to our husband or wife that we thought would never come out of our mouths. We're thinking things about ourselves or other people that legitimately scare us. And really what many of us are experiencing right now is simply the result of years, maybe an entire lifetime of avoiding the issues underneath the surface. Which is why it makes sense that the first principle of emotional health found in Scazzaro's book is exactly that, to look beneath the surface. And today we're looking at this famous encounter found in John chapter 4 between Jesus and a Samaritan woman at the well. Honestly, you could preach an entire series on this one story. I mean, there's so much in here that's relevant to our present moment. You could talk about racial justice, about Jesus crossing every conceivable ethnic, cultural, social boundary to minister to this woman. You could use the reference to the ongoing hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans found in this passage to talk about the deep divisions in our nation right now. I mean, there's so much in this text. But today, uh, we're going to look specifically at the way Jesus forces this woman at the well to confront the issues that are lurking beneath the surface. Issues she probably didn't even realize were there. Issues that have dictated so many of her life choices. Issues that brought her to this very well at this very time of the day. You see, Jesus is rarely interested in the external. He's always interested in the internal. You know, it's interesting. The story that comes right before this one in John chapter 3 is Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus, who is literally the polar opposite of the woman at the well. He's a Pharisee. He's a ruler of the Jews, a social elite. He's important, he's educated, he's powerful. Then in the very next chapter, you get this Samaritan woman who isn't even named. She's uneducated, has no influence, a social outcast. And the two encounters are juxtaposed as if to make a point that it doesn't matter what your life looks like on the outside. What Jesus really cares about is what's underneath the surface. And whether you are like a Nicodemus, someone who on the outside seems to have it all together, or you're like the Samaritan woman, someone whose life is a complete mess. Jesus today wants more than your behavior. He wants your heart. 
He wants to know how you're really doing. So let me start by asking all of you that question. How are you doing? Like not just on the outside, but how are you really doing? You see, a lot of us typically answer that question with a whole bunch of external details about our lives. I'm doing well, you know, kids are healthy, can't complain, still have a job. Or I'm not doing too well, working from home is rough, my company's probably going to do another round of layoffs, my wife and I have been fighting a lot. And usually the conversation ends there with a description of the circumstances. And this is typically how our society operates. If you're successful, if you're growing your brand, if you're moving up the corporate ladder, you just got married, you must be doing well because life looks great on paper. Well, I hate to break it to you, but married people will tell you that they can be just as unhappy as single people. The people at the top will tell you they can be just as unhappy as the people at the bottom. You can live in a multi-million dollar house and be the loneliest person in the world. Why is it that the wealthiest, most powerful country on earth reports the greatest levels of stress and anxiety? It's because we as a culture are obsessed with what's on the outside and we don't know how to look beneath the surface. Now our text today opens with Jesus sitting at a well in a town called Sychar in Samaria. Now first of all, what is a Jewish man doing sitting at a well in Samaria? You remember from a few weeks ago, the Jews and Samaritans, they hated each other. A Jew would never be caught dead hanging out in Samaria, let alone conversing with a Samaritan woman. Samaritans were seen as racial half-breeds. They were seen as unclean, less than human. Jews would typically walk twice as long just so they could avoid Samaria. And yet verse 4 says Jesus had to go through Samaria. He had to go there. You see, Jesus never avoids pain. He always moves toward it. He moves toward the uncomfortable places in our lives. He moves toward the mud, the places we try to avoid or keep locked away. And this is what we see here as he encounters this Samaritan woman at the well. Now keep in mind, it says Jesus is tired. He's been traveling on foot all morning. It's high noon, so it's in the heat of the day. Nobody during that time would have judged him if he chose not to engage at all. I mean, that would have been expected. Uh, especially given the fact that she was a woman, especially given the fact that she was a Samaritan woman at that. And yet, as always, Jesus seems to do what we least expect him to do. So here you have a tired Jesus sitting at this well, and he sees this woman approaching. Now, Jesus is a smart man. He knows exactly why this woman is coming to the well by herself at this time of the day. You see, in those times, women usually went to draw water in groups. Not only that, they usually went early in the morning before it got too hot. Jesus knows there's only one possible reason this woman could have come to this well alone in the heat of the day. It's one of two reasons, actually. It's either because she didn't want to see anyone or because she didn't want to be seen. In fact, the last person she wants to see is a man, certainly not a Jewish man, and certainly not a rabbi. Now, even though Jesus already knows all the stuff that's lurking beneath the surface of this woman, he needs her to discover it herself. And so he begins to take her on this journey inward. You know, they say the longest journey any person can take is not the journey outward. It's not the journey upward. It's the journey inward. You know, this encounter is the longest recorded encounter of all of Jesus' many encounters in the Gospels. And this reminds us that peeling back the layers of your own soul is not something that happens overnight. It's a long, 
often messy, often very uncomfortable process. And Jesus knows this, which is why every word that comes out of his mouth from the very beginning of this conversation is so intentional. He knows exactly what this woman is thinking as she walks toward him. She's probably nervous. She's maybe scared, most likely expecting rejection. I mean, rejection is built into her narrative. That's why she's there at this time of the day. Most likely, she's probably thinking, you know what, just don't make eye contact. Just draw the water and get out of here as fast as possible. And Jesus, knowing this is probably how she feels, makes the first move. He says to her, give me some water to drink. Immediately, he has her attention. What did he just say to me? Did a Jewish man really just ask me, an unclean Samaritan woman, for water to drink? You see, rejection is so built into her narrative, there's so much hurt and pain and distrust that she can't even fathom what's happening right now. But you see, this is Jesus peeling the first layer. He knows her reaction is just a symptom of everything happening underneath the surface. You know, in my early 20s, uh, I used to work as a therapeutic assistant for children with autism and PTSD. And one of the girls I used to work with uh, had just come out of a situation where she'd been abused by her caretakers. And I remember the first time meeting her, I tried to give her a high five and she immediately jumped back. And it was like this knee-jerk reaction any time a male figure lifted his hand. And it took months of regular visitations before she could finally trust me enough to even shake my hand. And this is what we're seeing here. The Samaritan woman definitely doesn't know what to make of Jesus, which is why she reacts the way she does. Now, obviously, her question doesn't faze him. In fact, he continues and he says, Well, if you knew who was speaking to you, you'd ask him for a drink and he would give you living water. And I love what happens next. The woman says, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Now, not sure if you caught this small detail, but in verse 12, she says, Are you greater than our father Jacob? She doesn't say my father or your father, which would have made sense, considering this is a conversation between a Samaritan and a Jew. No, she says, our father Jacob. Because Jesus has shown her that he's the real deal, because Jesus has shown her that he wants to connect, she now begins to let him in. Now, obviously, the woman is still missing the point of what Jesus is trying to tell her. He's talking about her spiritual needs. She's not getting it. She's still talking about her physical needs. She's like, wait, where am I going to get this magic water you're talking about? And where's your bucket? How are you going to give me water without anything to draw water with? You know, so many times things happen to us that expose deep spiritual needs in our souls. And yet we keep looking at the physical. We keep looking at the material. If we just got a job, if we just got married, if we just had a bigger place, if we just had more things. You know, I've been talking to a lot of married couples these days who tell me this quarantine has been tough on their marriages. I don't know how many times I've heard people say, I love my wife so much but I really don't think we were meant to spend this much time together. We're just hoping things will get better once life returns to normal. We're just waiting for that to happen. Translation, it's the circumstances that are causing our problems. And once the external things get fixed, we'll get fixed. And like the Samaritan woman, 
we can't seem to see that what we really need is not just another broken well. What we need is living water. What Jesus is used to people not always getting it. So he keeps shifting this conversation back to the spiritual. In verse 13, he says, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, as expected, the woman misses the point again. She's still so stuck in her old way of thinking that she can't even grasp what Jesus is trying to tell her. So she says, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty, so that I won't have to keep coming here to draw water. She's saying, please show me where this water is because I hate having to come back to this well every day. I hate having to take that walk by myself in the sweltering heat. She hates the reality she lives in, but perhaps has never asked herself why she hates it so much. You see, when you don't correctly identify the problem, you will not correctly identify the solution. And so you will go from well to well trying to satisfy your thirst. If you think the problem is that you need more Instagram followers, then you will go back to the well that is your Instagram feed over and over again, wondering why when you have a million followers now, you are just as unhappy as you were when you had 500. If you think the problem is your incompetent boss, then you will go back to the well that is your never-ending job search wondering why you can't seem to find a boss that is good enough for you. You've misidentified the problem, which is why you're going back to a well that will not satisfy. You know, I can't think of one person who likes being anxious or impatient. I don't know anyone who likes feeling stressed or angry. I don't know anyone who likes feeling insecure. But the problem is, we very rarely ask ourselves why we feel and react the way we do. When we get criticized at work and we lash out, when's the last time we asked ourselves the question, why am I so sensitive right now? When our parents make that passing remark and it makes our blood boil, when's the last time we asked, why does what they think matter so much to me? Why am I always in a hurry? Why am I so paralyzed with fear? And my guess is that if we started asking the why, it would be very revealing about what's really going on underneath the surface. Let me give you an example. I'm sitting at home with my daughter Avery this past week, who just turned uh, five on Friday, by the way. And we're trying to do this puzzle together and my phone keeps lighting up. Okay, it's a, first it's a text, so I text back. Uh, then a few minutes later, it's an email that I have to respond to and Avery's like, Ugh, daddy, come on. I'm like, I know, I'm sorry, I just have to send this one thing, uh, you know, just give me a minute. And a few minutes later, I get a phone call and I say to her, Avery, I'm gonna be right back, daddy just has to take this important call. And as I'm going up the stairs, I hear her say just loud enough so I can hear it, why is everything so important? I never knew a five-year-old could put me in my place like that. But you see, that question is so profound. Why is everything so important? On the surface, I'm just being responsible. I'm just responding to emails and calls and texts. But what is driving that insatiable need to take every call, to respond to every email and text immediately? Is it because I want people to know just how responsible I am? Is it because I want to be perceived as a good pastor? Is it because I have an image that I need to uphold? And this is ultimately where Jesus is headed with the woman at the well. 
He needs to get her to ask why. And in verse 16, he lays down the gauntlet. He says to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman replies, I have no husband. She's obviously trying to deflect. She's trying to avoid going down this road because it just hurts too much. But we know Jesus always goes to the places of greatest pain. And he says to her, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands. And the one you're with right now isn't your husband either. Talk about being exposed. Now, one thing I do want to point out here is that for those of us uh, who've listened to a lot of sermons on this text, uh, typically this Samaritan woman is portrayed as this immoral adulteress who just goes from husband to husband, sleeping around, looking for love in all the wrong places. And this may be true, but if we're going to be honest with the text, all we really know from what's written here is that her former five husbands are either deceased or divorced. And since during that time, only a man had the ability to divorce a woman, the most we can actually infer here is that this Samaritan woman has either had to grieve a lot of death or suffer a lot of rejection. And in a society and a culture where a woman's survival and livelihood depended solely on her husband, the only thing we can be absolutely sure of is that this woman is vulnerable, marginalized, and utterly alone. And I imagine her standing there, fully exposed, maybe for the first time. Talking to Jesus is like this big mirror, showing her the reality of a rejection. So understandably, her first instinct is again to change the subject. This conversation is starting to get a little too personal. So she asks Jesus a theological question about the differences between their ethnic worship, not realizing this is exactly where Jesus wants her to be. He wants her to be thinking in spiritual terms, not in physical terms. And he says, an hour is coming when it's not going to matter where one worships, but how he worships, in spirit and in truth. And suddenly this woman starts to connect the dots and she says, well, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus responds, I who speak to you am he. Your thirst isn't a physical one. It's a spiritual one. Your solution isn't a physical one. It's a spiritual one. And the person you've been waiting for your entire life is not another husband. The only one who can truly satisfy the deepest longings of your heart is me. You see, this is the first time in John's gospel that Jesus declares himself to be the promised Messiah. And isn't it so remarkable that the first time Jesus chooses to reveal himself is to an unnamed, outcasted Samaritan woman. Now, at this moment, this woman has no idea how Jesus is going to accomplish what he says he's going to accomplish. You see, Jesus was on his way to the place of greatest pain, the cross, where he would take all of our shame, all of our insecurity, our failure, and our doubt upon his own shoulders, that we would know this love that surpasses knowledge and experience that which this Samaritan woman so desperately longed for, the joy of being fully known and fully loved. You know, once we begin looking beneath the surface of our lives, like the woman at the well, we will encounter an ugliness that we never could have imagined. I mean, you think your life is messy now? Try looking underneath the hood and you will find just how messy your life really is. Unresolved bitterness, beliefs about yourself, rival gods. 
You will begin to discover all the things you've done to be loved and accepted and validated. You will begin to see all the ways you have projected your insecurities and your failures on your kids, on your spouse, on your friends, now realizing that you were drinking from wells that would never fill the void in your soul. And this can be very uncomfortable. But you see, the good news of salvation must always be preceded by the bad news of sin. We must first recognize how sinful, flawed, and broken we are in order to truly grasp our desperate need for a Savior. You see, looking beneath the surface not only confronts us with the reality of sin, but it also points us to the extraordinary love of Christ. Scazzaro writes this, Going beneath the surface of our lives can feel as if we are walking on a tightrope 50 feet above ground without a safety net below. The gospel is the safety net. It alone gives us the foundation to take the risk of stepping out onto the tightrope in order to explore our inner depths. And not only will this change the way we view ourselves, it will change the way we view others. You will know that you have done the hard work of looking inward when you begin to see others not with judgment, but with grace. Because it's only when you see just how deeply flawed yet how loved you are that you will begin to enact that same love and grace to those around you. Friends, I know the idea of looking beneath the surface and asking the why questions can be scary. Sometimes we feel like ignorance is bliss and we'd rather not face the truth about ourselves. But I want us to remember this as we close today. We worship a God who knows everything there is to know about us, who knows every horrible thing we've ever done or thought, who knows the depth of our brokenness and sin, and yet chose to give his life so that we would never thirst again. So today, let's commit to looking beneath the surface with confidence and hope, knowing that no matter where this journey leads us, Jesus is waiting there in our place of greatest pain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that so much of our lives has been spent crafting an image of ourselves that allows us to hide or run away from who we really are underneath the surface. Many of us are not even aware of the things that have held us captive our entire lives. Our need for external validation, our need for control, our need to be perceived a certain way. But today we ask for your spirit to help us take the first step inward, to uncover the source of our shame, our anger, and our fear, all while clinging tightly to the hope of the gospel, knowing that we stand on the solid rock of Jesus. We thank you that you always meet us where we are and that your grace extends to those who need it the most. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.